It's an honor to be with you this morning, church, to have this time to fellowship and encourage one another to worship our good God together, one voice, and pray and study God's good word. If you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke, we continue our sermon series. If you need a Bible to work through and work with this morning, we have some in the back of the room and love for that to be a blessing to you and your soul as we look to God's good word together. We're in chapter four. Today I'm going to preach part two of our work through these earliest verses in chapter four, looking um, very specifically at the famous account of the temptation of Christ that we see here in our passage today, verse three through 13. Consider with me again, by way of reminder, our focus of last week's sermon, as we saw Jesus preparing for the temptations of the devil and all that he would face in his public ministry to come. Luke chapter four, one through two. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Before we turn to the details of the tempter's bait, consider with me the real and present danger that the devil is in our fallen world and why we are not to disregard him, but why we also are not to fear him. In our Word of Truth Catechism, question 21, the question is, who is Satan? The answer is, Satan opposes God as the chief of the fallen angels by deceiving, tempting, and lying. Satan only has the access and ability that God permits him. Synopsis of the word of God's teaching. And the Hebrew word for Satan basically means adversary. In 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 18, the reference to Satan is a lying spirit. The New Testament term often used for Satan or the devil is the evil one. It's important that we understand that Satan was created at the same time as all the other angels, right? Before creation, before time, was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So God is eternal. So the angels are a part of creation, um, because God, when completing creation, said it was good, we can infer that Satan had not yet fallen. Originally created as a chief angel at the level of Michael, archangel, as we read about in Jude, Jude 9, he was the first of the angels to rebel and to promptly be thrown out of heaven along with the myriads of fallen angels who followed his lead. Satan now rebelliously leads a band of evil angels, also now referred to as demons. Although he is an angel of darkness, he disguises himself as an angel of light. And this is because he is the master of deception. Church, we must understand that Satan is a lying, evil spirit and nothing else. Nothing more. That said, we should not dismiss him, for he is real and he is at work in the world. 
Satan is referred to by Paul as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, which includes all unregenerate humanity and all fallen angels. He's referred to also in scripture as the God of this world, little g, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Basically, the whole order that rejects God, the creator, and worships the created instead is under his wicked influence. His reign is over the world's sinful system, as many scriptures apply, infer. Satan uses strong and influential tactics, and he's good at it. Things like doubt, creating a questioning of God's word and its trustworthiness, or discouragement, causing one to focus on their problems rather than on God. Or diversion, to bring attention to wrong things and make them seem attractive so that we will want them more than right things that honor God. Or defeat, to stir feelings in us of failure so that we don't even want to get up and keep trying. Or delay, baiting laziness or excuse-making so that people put off doing what is good and God-honoring. Satan wants nothing more, church, than to offer up the trap, than to bait mankind with things like wealth and pleasure and fame and acceptance and on and on so that we would choose sin instead of what is righteous and honoring to our Lord. It is really important that we understand that Satan is not unleashed and out of control. No, instead, Scripture is clear that he is under the authority of the Almighty. Right? He would not be Almighty if he was not Almighty, mighty over all, ruler over all. God rules over all things that he created, including Satan. Right? God is sovereign. Satan is not. Therefore, Satan is not a formidable foe of God's like modern day marketing wants to pitch him as. God and Satan are not on an even playing field engaged in some cosmic battle of all battles like maybe you've seen portrayed in modern artwork. Satan and Jesus arm wrestling. This is nonsense. This is unbiblical. In Job, we read that Satan only did what God allowed him to do to Job. Church, Satan is not omniscient. He, nowhere in Scripture does it give Satan the power to read minds or know things exhaustively. I think sometimes just naively, we, we really give him more than he has. Satan has a role to play in God's creation, and he is a good actor. We know that on the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death, just as God promised in Genesis 3.15 he would. On behalf of God's chosen and redeemed people, Church, we know that it is finished when it comes to our redemption 
for our sin, our separation from God. Amen and amen. While we are saved and secure in the victory of Christ and the power of God, you and I, while still in this body, on this rock, in this creation, before glory, we are still at war with the work of our fallen flesh and the temptation of sin and the powers of darkness. Even though we are victorious in Christ. Church, while we need to respect the constant skill, mastery of the manipulations, temptations, and evil work of Satan in this world, we need to not fear him. We need to fear no one but God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. With some of these important reminders under our feet, turning to our passage in these most famous temptations, truly, in all of recorded history, I know of no temptations, church, to the degree of what Satan throws at Jesus here. That's helpful for us because therefore no temptation that you'll ever face will be as great as what Jesus was tempted with. Okay, it's important to have that under our belt. I want you to notice the strategy, gamesmanship of Satan here. He comes to Jesus when Jesus' flesh is truly weakened by 40 days of fasting, 40 days of not eating, is a hunger like few of us, maybe any of us, really know what it's like to go 40 days without nourishment. How every part of the body is aching for nutrients. Think about that. Satan truly is the very best at the art of temptation and manipulation for the sake of baiting people to choose fleshly satisfying sin over God-honoring righteousness. He is patient. He is crafty. He is not afraid to do whatever it takes to get us to compromise into sin. Satan must have been feeling a little prideful since his diabolical plan to tempt the first Adam in Eden proved to be so effective. So here Satan is again to tempt the second Adam with the very best he has. As we look to each of these three best temptations, notice how each one of the assaults that we're about to witness are masterful at getting to the heart of every weak point of human nature. Church, we must rightly respect the expertise of our enemy when it comes to crafty deception and manipulation. Let me remind you, the best deception 
looks very good, very right. It's just off this much, thereby making it really good deception. Look with me at verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The context of these words is helpful, church, to remind you this is the first activity that we read Jesus having since his baptism and the heavenly confirmation of God the Father, who declared from the heavens in that famous moment, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. See Satan quick to arrive on the scene at the depth of the weakness of his flesh after 40 days of fasting to sneer at Jesus and begin his temptation with the words, if you are the Son of God. Basically says, prove it. Satan is the master of manipulation, deceit, and lies. This means he's always looking to create doubt and bringing temptation. Many men, masculine men, are easily tempted to compromise or to rile up when we are questioned. Brothers, track with me for a moment. Especially when our manhood or our position in life is questioned. One of the quickest ways you can get a grown man to act like a childish fool is to disrespect him or to question his manhood. That is because fallen men are prideful people in our flesh. See with me that this is what Satan is trying to do right out the gate. If you are the Son of God, then do this. Right? If you love your wife, do this. If you, if you love your children, do this. If you are who you say you are, then let's see it. Satan doesn't start by questioning if Jesus is really the Son of God. He starts by saying, if you are, prove it. Now remember that Satan is not all-knowing like only God is. So he likely has a limited view then of the true divinity of this man, of Jesus. But he does at least have a keen view of Jesus being one who has come into the world to make a dent in Satan's rule. The prince of this fallen world is not about to give way to the prince of peace without a fight. Satan is very crafty, and his aim in this first temptation is very simple. <clears throat> He's trying to tempt Jesus to turn away from his mission as the suffering servant and to cling to his eternal position as God the Son. See his play. If you are the Son of God, then why do this? Satan's implying, you don't need to do this suffering you came to do. 
Wouldn't it just be much better to stay in the royal, hollowed position you have been in and not sacrifice yourself? Here he is, 40 days, not eating. Sacrifice has begun. Commitment to God. Faithfulness. To double down, Satan uses the weakness of Jesus' flesh and his true and complete hunger for food to bait him. This is a similar appeasement to the flesh that Satan gave to Adam and Eve. Doesn't the forbidden fruit look so good and pleasing to the eye and to the body? Just enjoy it. Saying to Jesus here, there's no need to experience this hunger you're going through or any of the other suffering you're about to experience in the flesh. Just feed your hunger with the most amazing bread that you are able to make out of this rock. I mean, consider how good that bread would be for Jesus to make it. I mean, we're talking about the best bakery you've ever walked into, right? Well, you and I think rock. We think this would be pretty lousy. No, no, no. Think of the one who's able to take the rock. The one who's able to take the water and turn it into the very best wine. Satan is baiting Jesus to work a miracle to satisfy his carnal appetite, his fleshly appetite. Praise God that Jesus endures this great hunger to not sell out and compromise his mission. Jesus' answer to the temptation is the use of God's holy word. Luke 4, verse 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. First note that Jesus is quoting here, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. That verse in its fullness, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Church, if you remember last week's precursor to today's sermon, much of the uniqueness of the wilderness fasting journey that Jesus is on leading up to this is a capture of what the Israelites went through. And all of these quotes that Jesus is about to give in response are connected to those texts in Deuteronomy. What Jesus is standing for in his answer is to say that he will not allow his physical hunger and legitimate desire to eat food to take priority over his relationship with and trust in God. The point made here is one that we all must do serious business with. At the end of the day, church, our faithfulness to God's word and will is far greater of importance to our good stewardship of this life than our faithfulness to just physically live and get through our days. See the eternal 
there. I mean, take the very people of Deuteronomy 8, where this quote is from. The Israelites died in the wilderness for their disobedience to God, despite the fact that their bellies were full of the manna that he was providing them. Jesus would later say, John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Later, Jesus would also say in Matthew 6, 31-33, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus would indeed go out to go on to live all of this out faithfully. He would model what it looks like to completely trust the Father's provisions and the Holy Spirit's care while staying on mission until it was finished. Jesus' life was truly marked perfectly with devotion to every word that comes from the mouth of God and not to living by bread alone. Christian, are you lately living by bread alone? Or is there devotion to every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord? I pray our food is to do the will of our Lord, to accomplish his work. Now quickly, does being faithful to the word and will of the Lord mean we don't steward our bodies by fueling them with food? No, that's not what's being said here. This is why the word says, man does not live by bread alone. Meaning the provision of God to feed his people is a good gift and one that we're able to steward well. Not with gluttony or with the mismanagement of eating junk food, but honoring the Lord with a good diet and priority to fuel the temple of the Holy Spirit that he's entrusted to us. This is where Satan's temptation is so sly. Because eating food is not a sinful thing. Right? The, the eating of the bread that Christ could make out of the rock in and of itself is, is not sinful. Church, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be steadfast in living according to the word and not the ideas of man or the longings of the flesh or the bait of the evil one. God's word is such an undervalued asset for all of our life that we're trying to live. We can't get to this passage and not do serious business with this point. We need to understand God's word and its vital importance to our lives 
to learn from it, embrace it, and use it more than we do. Ephesians 6.17, Paul describes God's word as a sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Church, our true daily fight is not with flesh and blood. It's with the spiritual realm. And therefore, we need a spiritual weapon in our hands if we're going to fight in this devil-ruled world. God's, God's words of truth is our essential tool, not on occasion, but for our entire life as we navigate this world of lies, as we combat the sinful longing of our flesh and failed reasoning of our fallen mind. This is our only and best weapon. And here in Ephesians 6, Paul lists the spiritual armor that we are to put on to fight with. And it's important to note in that passage that God's word is our only offensive weapon as part of the armor. Everything else is defensive. The question is, Christian, are you training with it and ready to use it? That there's a discipline with it that's as important to you as the weapons you own or carry or the locking of your doors or the practices of your family that you exercise with discipline. Is this the most vital weapon in your arsenal that you're faithful to train, to, to take in and to use? How many bullets do you have in your spiritual gun? Are they loaded or are they somewhere sitting at home eventually to be gotten to? Bullets for your gun are not very effective unless they're loaded in the gun and ready to be used. Hold on, bad guys. I got to go find my bullets. The sword of the Spirit is the powerful, authoritative, impactful, far-reaching truths of God. It, it is so important that you don't downplay how potent it was for Jesus to simply but confidently quote God's word in the face of the greatest temptation ever laid forth. I, in that, I just want you to see, we're blessed with something really potent here. Jesus is modeling for us that you don't have to be some master spiritual ninja to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan's best. The simplicity of the truth of God's word is all that's needed. And every one of us has blessed access to it.
And, and can I just say, this is for all of life. N not just those big, scary moments with the big, bad enemy. It's for all those little interactions in your own mind, in talking and walking with your family, and going about your work day. Because it's often in those very little things where the enemy shows up to do some of his best work. Listen carefully to Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a really sharp sword. We must understand the potency of what God has put in our hands so that we don't dismiss it in our lives. So we don't walk around it. So we don't play with it and then move on with our day. Too many Christians say they came to today to fight for Jesus. But their weapons nowhere to be found. Church, I pray, I pray this is not you. I, I pray that the Lord would, would ordain that on this day in February of 2024, in encountering this most potent and important passage, your family experiences the beginning of some real revival and reformation. Because the word begins to move more centrally into your life and your family's life than ever before. That would be an investment of immeasurable portion for the days to come. See the great blessing God has given you with his written word. Psalm 119.98 Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Only with the word of God does the Christian become wiser than our spiritual enemies. To become handy with the sword of the Spirit, we need to study, we need to train in the word. Or as the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Psalm 119, 11. Or one of my absolute favorites is Psalm chapter 1. I'll give you the first three. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. There's a, a practice here the saints of old would do 
so they could meditate on the word day and night. That word meditation in Hebrew here means to speak or to mutter. When this is done in the heart, there's a musing, a a meditation. So what we're talking about here is not just a faithful reading, right? No, it's a steady diet of the word, which means, just to get real practical, that's not like that little box we check for five minutes where we scarf down the word of God and call it good for the day. It's more than that. But, but one of the best ways we meditate on the word is to begin to memorize it. Pastor John Piper once gave the following reasons why committing to Bible memorization is so great for us. Number one, memorizing scripture makes meditation possible at times when you can't be reading the Bible. Meditation is the pathway of deeper understanding. Number two, memorizing scripture shapes the way I view the world by conforming my mind to God's viewpoint. Memorizing scripture makes God's word more readily accessible for overcoming temptation to sin because God's warnings and promises are the way to conquer the deceitfulness of the promises of sin. Memorizing scripture guards my mind to make it easier to detect error. And the world is filled with error since the little g God of this world is a liar. Memorizing scripture provides the strongest and sweetest words for ministering to others in need. Memorizing scripture provides the matrix for fellowship with Jesus because he talks to me through his word and I talk to him in prayer. Memorizing scripture enables me to hit the devil in the face with a force he can't resist and so protect my family and myself from his assaults. My true prayers, the people of Disciples Church are people of God's word, growingly so. Wherever you're at, taking good steps in a good direction to love it, to love time in it, to meditate on it and to teach it to your children and raise them in it. Praise God for the many ways this is happening, the fruit that it's bearing. Church, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of our Lord. Look at the second temptation with me. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. This is what I say, church, when you and I have never faced temptation to such a degree, um, because you've never been offered this, right? If you had, you'd be crazy famous. Luke says, he took him up. Matthew in his gospel says, the devil took him to the highest mountain. Satan does this to give him a view of what he's trying to sell him next. Uh, See, the temptation of the devil here is like the very best commercial advertisement ever. Making the biggest and most famous Super Bowl ad look like child's play. 
I mean, we're, we're talking 3D high resolution view, baiting, calling, tempting. Christian, it is so important to recognize how constant the onslaught of advertising of the devil is in our life. I mean, he is relentless to convince us to buy what he is selling, to make it look normal and right and good, hoping that we, we see what he's offering and see it as desirable and good, even though it's full of compromise and consequence. He says to Jesus, look at what I'll give you if you'll bow and worship me. I mean, this is the sell your soul to the devil and have your dream now pitch. Most of us quickly believe we would not fall for this offer if given us by the devil to sell out and worship him and follow his ways and call what is wicked good and what is good evil. But sadly, people are doing this all the time. Are they not? People sell out, sell out their faith, their devotion to God to keep a relationship with the wayward son or daughter. They will avenge heinous wrong done to a loved one. Avenge it wickedly. They will taste the lips of the forbidden woman. Understand what Satan is offering here to Jesus. This is not small. He is offering for Jesus to rule over the world's entire system. See, Satan's influence in the world, as he declares he has here, is, is true in this way. John 12, 14, 16, Jesus himself refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. The Apostle John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. The Apostle Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2, and the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. That said, Holy Scripture is clear that Satan's permitted reign by God and influence over this fallen world will come to a harsh and permanent end in his final judgment as Satan is destined for eternal destruction. Right? So this very thing then that Satan is pitching to Jesus to have, hey, have this, have this reign that I have, it, it, it's going to turn to ash. It, it's a guise. It's, it's fugazi. It's fake. It, it's not real. It, it's not lasting. It, it, it's, it's a ploy. What, what? Revelation 20, 9 through 10. Here's, here's where Satan's reign comes to this dramatic end. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You, you don't want his reign. It's coming to an end. The prophecies of old, also given through Mary about Jesus, 
of old all declare that Jesus' reign will have no end. Luke 1, 32-33, speaking to Mary, He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Praise God for his eternal covenant of redemption, for the victory and forever reign of Jesus our Lord. He's truly our bloody champion, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. See Satan's request here for Jesus to bow to him as the pinnacle of Satan's lust. His pride, Satan's pride, wants, longs for the worship of creation that rightly belongs to God. If you think about it, Satan's pursuit to be worshipped, watch this, is the very purpose of his installing false religions. In the world. False religions are not worshiping the one true God. If God is not being worshiped rightly, truly, then they're worshiping idols, demons, essentially Satan himself. This is Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 10:20. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. This is the high emphasis, church of the first commandment, Exodus 23-5. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Satan is, is going for the jugular here to, to try to bait Jesus to worship him and sell out to have a temporary reign of Satan's fallen system. Now, once again, this is an appeasement to Jesus' flesh. Satan is essentially saying, you don't need to go through all the suffering you're about to experience to receive some kind of authority or rule over this creation. You can just have it now. Just have it now. Just bow and worship me. This is a very bad exchange because the unending rule of Jesus is so much more eternally greater than the temporary reign that Satan has over the fallen system now. But again, isn't this the crux of the temptation that so many people fall prey to? When we sell out the beauty and the wonder of intimacy that God designed to be only in marriage in order to have a cheap replica of it now, outside of marriage, and pay a high price for it? Scripture says no higher price do you pay than for sexual sin. We throw away trusting God's provision for our lives with faithful stewardship of the money he's entrusted to us in order to accumulate debt 
to have what my flesh thinks I need now and agree to pay a higher price for it in the long run with interest rates through the roof and the long time penalty for my family. We spend our days fixated on our desires for created things to satisfy us instead of abiding in Christ and enjoying Him and growing in Him. I mean, Christians, just be honest. Where are those longings as of late? What is that picture in your head that you can't shake? Man, if I just had that, Life would just be so much better. And we wonder why we're never satisfied, but constantly languishing in sin. Church, our propensity to sell out is real. Is real. It's an ever-present danger. How diligent we must be to see that our enemy prowls around us like a roaring lion looking to get his claws into us. Temptations of this life to sell out, to compromise, to settle for Satan's counterfeit treasures that are so temporary and reap so much consequence, it is truly always before us. This is why this is so critical to take as seriously as we need to. To be on guard, constantly putting our hope and trust and worship in God alone. In God alone. He is enough. That I'm satisfied and I'm full of joy because I have Christ. Heed David's words, church, Psalm 37, 1 through 4. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When we're tempted to give in to temporary satisfactions in our sin, especially when we're struggling in life, vulnerable, when we're experiencing some real hardship, persecution, even suffering, We've got to heed James' words in James 5, 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the earthly, the, I mean, the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James 5, 7 through 11. I pray it be so for our lives as well, church. 
that we run the long race of steadfastness in the Lord. Satan has baited his hook. Look with me now at Jesus' reply to Satan's temptation to bow to him. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There would be no deal made with the devil that day as Jesus refused to step to sidestep God's plan for redemption. Jesus would claim no shortcut to temporary glory. He would be faithful to follow the covenant of redemption made in eternity past between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No matter what, it's going to cost him. Praise God for this. Once again, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy to combat Satan's temptations. Deuteronomy 6, 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name shall you swear. Continuing 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of peoples who are around you. Verse 15, for the Lord your God is in the midst, in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Church, God is worthy. He is worthy to be praised. He's worthy of our devotion. No, no one is worthy like the Lord. May we be so mindful of Satan's plea to bow to him that comes to us in all shapes and sizes, in the little things of life. Remember that Satan is the doctor of deception, so most often when he baits his hook, it's not with this outright call to bow, right? The offer is not as grand as what Satan put on the table to Jesus. But it's to grab hold of something that might even, might even be in and of itself good, desired. But in the end, it's fruit from a forbidden tree. Or it's compromise that goes against the Lord. No, let us instead abide in Christ and remain faithful to our God and worship him alone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Look with me at the third temptation, Luke 4, 9 through 11. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, all right, here's Satan giving some scripture. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. First, the temple is a place where God is said to give shelter and protection. We see this in Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So it is a direct challenge to God to tempt him in this place. See the arrogance of Satan in this. Now, in this very chapter of Psalm 91 that I just read from you, 
is where Satan quotes. Catch that. Does Satan know what he's doing here? Yeah, he's keen. Thumbing his nose up at God. Verse 11 through 12 of Psalm 91 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's what Satan said. He's basically saying, if God gave his angels to protect David, he's surely all the more going to protect you, God the Son. Son of God, right? This is Satan's ploy here. Now, it's important that we have a right interpretation of God's word, and we must, church, let Scripture interpret Scripture so we don't make God's word say something it doesn't, like many are prone to do. This is really important because people, even Satan, can use God's word out of context, make it say a lot of things that's not meaning. Paul says we are to Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Scripture testifies how the Berean Jews were faithful to examine the Scriptures every day to test the things they were being taught. Acts 17.11. We're to test all things according to Scripture. And to let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is how we protect against inserting our own ideas or desires or agenda into what God's word says, like sadly many do, even from the pulpit. See with me that this is what Satan is doing. He's using a passage of scripture to try to manipulate this situation into sin. Church, later in Luke 22, verse 43, we're going to read that an angel of God does appear to the Lord's side. Watch this. But not to save him from his suffering, but to strengthen him through it. Luke twenty-two forty-three. there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. The Lord's power and strength at work in us is not to satisfy or to selfishly serve or preserve ourselves, but to sacrificially serve others, to die to self, to live for Christ's glory. Look with me at Jesus' reply in verse 12. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Scripture is clear that we are not to test God. To test God is to call into question God's power, ability, or faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises. And that is a serious offense. Church, we do not need to test the Lord to see if he proves trustworthy. Because nothing in all of creation for all time is as faithful and trustworthy as God is. God said it well to the faithful in Philippi. I'm sorry, Paul said it well to the faithful in Philippi. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christian, when you're feeling uncertain and maybe feeling a fleshly desire to test God, don't do that. Remember this. 
Christian, may we all be faithful to our God and not turning our back on him, doubting him, when he has been the, nothing but the epitome of faithful. See with me that it is truly disrespectful to test God like somehow he needs to be vetted by us. And again, Satan, he, he quotes the passage correctly. Did you notice that? He doesn't tweak the words. The quote is accurate. But his application to what it says is route with sin. Scripture has to interpret Scripture to protect that someone's not saying the words of God and then applying them or teaching them wrongly. Look at verse 13. When the devil had ended his every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke tells us that Satan departs, but he's not done. He's just sore from losing this fight. In a limp home. But the war is not over. He threw his best three pitches. Jesus teed him up. All right, regroup, figure out a different angle. We hear of Satan's deceptions and wicked works along the way. Places like Luke 8 12, the the ones along the path are those who have heard, but the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Later, he collaborates with the high priest and the scribes to look for the good occasion to get to Jesus, Luke 22, 6. Satan's influence will be on Judas, as we've seen in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, to sift Simon in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, to influence and stir the sinful roots behind Jesus' arrest and death in Luke twenty-two fifty-three. Oh, he's not done. But he's going to lose. God declared it from the very beginning. In closing, I want to spend a few minutes this morning giving some important application for the weighty and hard fight that you and I endure as we fight sin and temptation daily. I want us to see, church, most importantly, that Jesus sympathizes with the temptations you face. It's important that you see that Jesus' human flesh was truly vulnerable by his hunger, truly tempted by the offerings before him. The temptations were fully real. Listen to Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Was it easy for Jesus to go through this? No. Scripture says here that he suffered. Christian, he knows. He sympathizes. 
This is good news to our weary and often war-torn soul. To know that Jesus is not far away, no, he is with me. And he gets the depth of the temptation and the hardship that I'm facing, and he loves me. Christian, he loves you. He's with you. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so here it is. Your, your call, your application today, church, is not be like Jesus. That's not this sermon. See, he modeled it for you. Now go do what he did. Hear this passage. With confidence, we must draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We need Jesus. You're not doing this without him. You're desperate for him every step of the way. Why it's so essential we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we find mercy, help, comfort, reorientation, emboldening of our faith in our greatest times of need. Too often I hear Christians who are struggling and they think, oh, I've done all this. I need something else. I'm now looking for something else to help me figure this problem out. Someone else. No one can help you like Jesus only can. When we pour out our hearts to the Lord before the throne of grace and groan under the burden of our daily temptations and harassments, we come to truly know the mighty and loving presence of our good shepherd who makes intercession for us and leads us unto righteousness. We sing about it earlier. Let us never lose sight of who we are in Christ, right? We were slaves of sin, Romans 6.17. We were once in the snare of the devil, 2 Timothy 2.26. Christian, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were all of that and good at it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 1-5 If anyone here today is not truly saved and belonging to Christ, repent of your sin and trust your lives to Jesus and be saved. We would love nothing more, the, the members of this church would love nothing more than for you to invite them in to say, this gospel, this salvation, can we talk more about it? We'd love nothing more to pray with you, to help you clarify and understand, to celebrate your salvation, to begin to walk with you in your new faith.
those of us who are saved and set free. Praise God for his saving grace. Because it's only by the grace of God we're saved. Also, praise God for his mighty power at work within us to fight sin and overcome temptations. Romans 6, 6-8, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's what the symbolism of baptism is about. Going to the grave, that old person dying. Uh, Christian, are you, are you somehow hanging your hat on, on the ways of that old man? That guy's dead. Be alive in Christ. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. While we're still in our body of flesh and while temptation of the flesh to give over desires to sin is real every day, we're empowered by Jesus to fight sin and not give in to it. Paul makes a great and essential declaration in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation. I want you to think about how many temptations that that's talking about. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Stop telling yourself, man, no one else is going through this one. That's a lie. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with, every, with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the word of God. That's the promise of God. So hear this today and take it deep into your soul. You are never Christian without the power to overcome temptation. You don't need something else if you have Jesus. You don't need more money. Stop thinking that's your answer. You don't need a different relationship. Stop thinking that's your answer. You don't need more drugs. You don't need more free time. You don't need whatever the world is telling you you need. Jesus is enough. He is the answer. He's the power. He is the way. That's the truth of God amidst all the lies. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you proclaim that in the face of the very temptations you're wrestling against? Proverbs 1.10, my son, if sinful men entice you, do not give way to them. We need to be willing to turn from temptation even in the midst of serious peer pressure, church. Peer pressure is very serious. But also what you need to consider is who are your peers? Do you realize that in many instances you choose your peers? If you have peers that you're running with that are pressuring you to sin, you need some new peers. I'm serious. I'm serious. I, I often told the youth for a long time, peer pressure is your fault. Because you're picking who you're running with. The role of our closest community and friend circle is to help us fight sin, to turn away from temptation. Those who will play a major role are either going to press you into Christ or are going to help, help you hold the line while the hook is baited to sin. One or the other. 
The author of Hebrews speaks of this important role. But exhort one another daily, as long as it's called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What a blessing it is to have this community, to have people in our lives. Don't find ways to get outside a good community. We need it. We're desperate for it. Paul speaks to the essential role of church pastors in this, that we pastors are to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that we can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. May we lean in all the more, church, to the blessing of the church, to walk this together, to fight this fight together. Stand with me as we close. I want to ask you to close your eyes as I read a few more verses over you as we go to prayer and song. It is my fault that we're going to be about five minutes long today. I just could not split the second sermon into three. So here we are. Hear this word, church. 1 John 2, 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the sweet blessing that this passage is to our souls, our, our lives, our families, our church, and the ministry you've called us to in these days under the sun before glory. We thank you for the work that you have begun in us in this word and that you will continue to do through us that we would be joyful and thankful, full of praise to you for these truths to be planted deep in the soil of our hearts and minds. Bring us forth in great faith, faithfulness to you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your victory over sin and death on our behalf. And we worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.